Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke with Geoffrey Archer. So I talked to the best-selling novelist Geoffrey Archer uh, earlier in the year. Fascinating interview. We talked about what it's like to be a writer who shifted literally millions of books. We discussed the interplay between his literary work and his political life. And we also talked about his extremely exacting routine. Enjoy. So, Lord Archer, thank you so much for taking Jeff the time. Fine. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, the p- moment that I wanted to start at was the beginning of your professional writing life. So, yes. this moment in the 70s when the Aqua Blast case has happened, yes. you have these debts, the decision to write uh, not a penny more, not a penny less. Could you take us back to that moment and, and really the process of what you went through? Well, it was stupid, really, because I actually thought I'd make some money and I didn't realize. Writers don't make any money. Mm. In fact, the average in Britain today, as you probably know, is the average writer in Britain makes £10,000 a year. Which is, I've just seen the figures in the parliamentary report, and they're, they're staggering. But I thought I had a good idea in the sense that four young men lose a fortune, have it stolen from them, which happened to me, and then you bring them together as one and steal it back, not a penny more, not a penny less. And I suppose like all semi-educated people, I assumed I could write. Uh, so I sat down and wrote, not a penny more, le- not a penny less. Uh, I think it took about six months. Could you give some context as to what was going on, what you'd done thus far? You had been in Parliament, you were in your I'd mid- been a member of Parliament 30s. for five years, and for I'd been a member of the Greater London Council for three years before that. So I'd been eight years in politics. And I'd uh, run a company called... Uh, Arrow Enterprises, which did, it did fine. We were doing very well. But I stupidly invested too much money in a company called Aquablast and lost everything Mm. stolen from me. Nowadays, it wouldn't happen because the Bank of Boston were the advisors, and nowadays they'd have to pay me back. They wouldn't get away with saying, oh, well, you bad luck. Uh, They gave the advice, and uh, they'd have had to, I'd have cleared, and I'd have ended up after years and years of working in Parliament, I'd have ended up as Under Secretary of State for Transport mm. and never written a word. Whereas, in fact, uh, I did write the first book, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less. Where did you write it? Uh, in Brasenose College, Oxford. Okay. The principal, delightful man, who had been very kind to me when I was up at Oxford, uh, Sir Noel Hall, gave me a couple of rooms in his lodgings, and I worked there, which was very, very kind of him, because I wanted to be on my own, I wanted to get it done. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect, really. The first 16, 15, 16 publishers turned it down. Everyone turned it down. Did you have an agent? Can't hear you, sorry. Did you have an agent at that stage? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, I had a lady called Deborah Owen, okay. the wife of David Owen, mm. distinguished foreign secretary, uh, who loved it and couldn't understand it. And so she started trying to get reports back. And they said, he'll never write another book. He'll go back into politics. And we publishers can't afford to do a one-off book. There's no money in it. So she said, no, I think he's out of politics. And I think he will write another book. But she couldn't convince them. And in the end, um, Tom Mashler. A very uh, very famous publisher. A very distinguished publisher. You're quite right. A very famous publisher. um, Of Jonathan Cape. Paid me £3,000 to publish it in hardback. He then sold it to 
uh, Harper, he then sold it to Hodder and Stoughton, uh, their paperback. They bought it for paperback. And um, they did a little better. They published uh, 25,000 copies. Mm. But they still weren't making any. Uh, my wife said, you know, it's time for you to look for a proper job. It was so I didn't see myself as a writer for life. So the break was Cain and Noble? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, that changed my whole life overnight because the Americans had a bidding war for it, mm. which ended up at 3,200,000. And it went straight to number one on the New York Times and straight to number one in London. So that changed my whole life. And what, what were the factors? We've had a lot of very successful writers on the show. What, what do you think were the factors that made that happen? Do you know, it's fascinating you say that. And you couple it, we've, we've had very successful authors. And it's always different. It's always we can never it. explain. You yeah. can never. There's, why does one book startle and another book not? Or, and then you read them both and you can't really tell the difference between, you think, why, why did that one? It, it's weird. But it, it took off. It's now in its 40th year, yeah. selling 32,700,000 copies been read by 100 million people, and I still can't explain it. It sold 400,000 last year. Where were you when it was clear that it had exploded? Was there a particular moment? I was in New York. Um, no, in the sense that both my wife and I were puzzled by what people were saying. You know, a year today, everybody will uh, believe that when I see it. Yeah. And, and then it happened. Uh, and it remained on the New York Times bestsellers list for 57 weeks. And by then, of course, I began to believe it myself, but I certainly didn't begin to believe it at the beginning, no. And when you were making this move from politics to writing, mm. did you have a kind of novel that you wanted to write in mind? Were there literary influences that you had? Well, not in the way, I'm, and I can see it in your face, not in the way you, an educated man, would assume that. I'm looking at Stefan Zweig. Who I worship, but I didn't discover him until I was 60. Okay. I think Stefan Zweig is uh, arguably since the age of 60, the biggest influence on my life. And he was the biggest selling author of the At that the time, I was much more influenced by, say, Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. Uh, a as big as who I adored, yes. I adored Scott Fitzgerald. And there are others. But uh, I got to Stefan Zweig very late in life. I didn't discover him until I was 60. And I've now got a series of people all over the world writing to me saying, thank you for introducing me mm. to Stefan Zweig who, of course, went out of fashion after the war, yeah. wasn't even published, despite being the most successful author on earth in 1938. Yeah. And now he's back. Yeah. Now everybody's reading Stefan Zweig. Yeah. Did, did you, I suppose, did you think you, know, you wanted to write, you, you describe yourself often as a storyteller. Did you think you wanted to write thrillers or, or literary fiction? Were those, were those notions of genre in your no. head? No. You see... You're asking questions in a professional and serious manner. We you try. mustn't think of me that way. Okay. I picked up a pen and wrote okay. and prayed. And what came out was not a penny more, not a penny less. And then later, Cain and Abel. I don't, can't do it that way. I mean, that's analytical of you. That's sensible of you. That's thinking it through. I, no, no, not me. I just picked up a pen and said once upon a time and hoped. I'm going to push you on that, though, a bit, because looking at your routine, the routine that you've developed as a writer, yes. I was watching the, the short documentary that Macmillan did about the, yes. the, pr the production, and you'll describe this a lot better than I will. I'd, I'd like it if you did, but this right down to the specific date that you go to Mallorca. Oh, yes. the, you know, this, this doesn't seem to be 
you know, you, you, I'm ruthlessly a, organized. Yeah. Yes, ruthlessly. Yeah. The day I go out, start six to eight, ten to twelve, two to four, six to eight, bed at nine thirty, ten, up again at five thirty. Ruthless. Yeah. But I don't know what's coming. Okay. I get out of bed, go to my desk, and pray. If I'm lucky, I know three pages, yeah. and then we see where it goes. And sometimes it goes exactly the opposite direction. You'd thought the day before it would go. Yeah. Um, other storytellers, other writers, not storytellers, other writers tell me they put bits of paper on the wall yeah. and they know where all the chapters are and they know where it's going. Count me out. That's not me. Yeah. Could we talk about that process then, the, the evolution from your, your sitting in Brazenose College writing that book to, to now this kind of almost military disciplined process? Yes. How do you go about developing that? over your, your career? Do you know, it's very hard to answer that question, and I'll tell you why it's hard to answer that question. Okay. When you reach my age, you can't remember if it was just a general working in or whether I started that way. I now can tell you, say for On the Clifton Chronicles, which was seven books in a row, the system never changed. And people might be cl uh, cynical or clinical about that and say, it's a system. No, no. The writing is disciplined. Yeah. What comes out is not yes. disciplined. No, I see that. That you've, you've, you've created kind of a sandpit, like a wall. Oh, but that's, but that's, we're all different. Whenever I give a lecture, I say, in the audience, how many of you want to write a book? Up go half the hands in the audience. Yeah. And I say to them, every one of you will be different. Hmm. An Irishman at the Trinity College, Dublin, who told me he was going to write the great Irish novel in a weekend. Fine. We're all different. Yeah. I take a thousand hours. And you're quite right. I like my pencils in a row. I like my pens in a row. I like my sharpener where it is. I like my rubber where it is. I like the picture of my wife where it is. And I the, like the picture. hourglass, right? And an hourglass so that I don't cheat. It's very easy to stop at 5-2, 10-2. If you knock that eight times a day, that's 80 minutes. So you haven't yeah. done eight hours. You've done six hours, 50 minutes. The hourglass is vicious. Present from my wife see the sand going through, and it says, no, you haven't done two hours. Now, it is true that occasionally you come to the end of a chapter or the end of a section in an hour and 45 minutes, and it would be very wrong to start the new section. Uh, you can still do other things, but uh, the hourglass is there to make sure I don't cheat myself. Wait, so where does research fit into this? That's the year before? Two ways. Take, for example, I'm currently doing a series of books. Number one will be out on September the 5th called Nothing Ventured, which is the story of a young police constable in the Metropolitan Police. And we're going to follow him from his life as a young police constable right the way through to becoming commissioner if I live that long. Mm -hmm. Now, half the research is reading books connected to the Metropolitan Police yeah. or policing, but... I have three police, two policemen, one policewoman. Two, uh, I've got a detective superintendent, retired, now doing a PhD. I've got a detective superintendent who's just written his first book and it's been brilliantly successful in nonfiction. And I've got a detective sergeant woman who was in the Metropolitan Police for 30 years. And the three of them uh, will tell you I give, I, get, I give them, when I've written about six drafts, I give it to them. 
I was going to ask where it came in the process because we had Ian Rankin on and he said when he was starting out, he made the mistake of doing research before he had started. Oh, how interesting. That you would then, and you would get stuck looking at a, a blood test or forensic thing how that, would, interesting. that would not make it through. I think he's right. And that you then, you push through, you create a draft and then you research I agree with backwards. him. I agree with that. Uh, on top of that, I'd say by my age and by Mr. Rankin's age, you have a fair knowledge. So a lot of that knowledge gets into the book. But then you then realize halfway through that if you're going to discuss heroin, crack, cocaine, cocaine, and marijuana, you'd better have the facts and the figures. So the police are wonderful on stopping me making a complete fool of myself. Mm. So Where uh, did you find them? Um, the, I met one in a church. He, uh, John Sutherland, was reading the lesson in a church. I then read his book. I then got in touch with him. I knew it's what I wanted. Uh, and Michelle, uh, I had met. Uh, she had come to interview me uh, about phone tapping. Mm -hmm. And the third one, the man who's doing a PhD, is a friend of John's. And they're all three quite outstanding. But where they're more valuable than boring facts, uh, Tunic has six silver buttons on it, mm -hmm. not five, not four, not seven, is the anecdotal stories they can tell about their life, they don't add greatly to the story overall, but they make the, human, the person human. And they bring in things that the reader will go, yeah, of course that's right. Have you done that before in other worlds? Always. Cain and Abel was based on two men, Rockefeller and Kwiatowski. Uh, I spent a long time with both. Listened to their story. They were close friends, not enemies. I listened to their stories about each other. One, a man who'd come from Poland with nothing, who built a fortune. One who was born into amazing wealth in New York, and they were close friends. And they told me their stories and how they intertwined. And I took that and made it into Cain and Abel. Uh, I don't think either of them felt it was much to do with them in the end. In the sense, were they were they part of when it became this huge worldwide hit? Was that known? No, they asked for their names not to be known until they died. They're now both dead, and now everybody knows. Okay. So I kept it a secret for 30 years. Interesting. I wanted to ask as well about the short story. You, you write short stories prolifically. 92, I've written 92. And you know, that seems to be a form that is in some ways having a renaissance, but also a form that had a real nadir. Yes. One thinks yes. the Saturday Evening Post, in, you know, 30s, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, that, there was a real aspirational thing. Oh, Henry, write. Maupassant. Everyone, exactly, yeah. wrote them. Somerset Maugham. Why, why did you stick with them when they were unfashionable? My problem when I was traveling around the world, meeting people, was they were making, telling me amazing stories mm. they thought would make novels. And nine times out of ten, they wouldn't make novels. They were incidents in their lives that were amazing. And I thought, when they told me, I thought, if I weave that in a certain way, I can make it into a short story. But there was no novel there. And I would go back to them and say, look, I'm going to write your, this thing you called me very kindly, but you, you may not even recognize it when I finished with it. For example, in the latest set of short stories, there's one called Who Killed the Mayor? And my housekeeper in Mallorca said, Have you, there's a Spanish, in a Spanish paper this morning, there's a story, and she read it to me, it was only four or five lines, that in a village in Spain, uh, when the mayor was murdered, every single person who was interviewed said they'd done it. Okay. 
they told the police, I did it. The Spartacus model. Yeah. Uh, which was so they couldn't catch the real person. Mm. And I thought that'd make a wonderful short story. Uh, and took, so she told me what it said in Spanish. I put it in an Italian village on the top of a mountain where they made truffles and wine and oil and turned it into who killed the mayor. Mm. So the germ of an idea sometimes is enough for me. One sentence sometimes. Uh, but nine times out of ten, what the person says, I've got the best story you've ever heard. It's been done a hundred times. Yeah. What about um, editors? You talk again, and I was watching these films, you, you, you mentioned a number of editors, Corley Smith particularly? Oh, the great Corley Smith, who edited J.D. Salinger. Yeah. Uh, it was a privilege, privilege to be in the same room as him. Um, he was a highly educated... Oh, I've just seen the other day uh, the Maxwell Perkins story. Mm. Who was uh, Fitzgerald's editor and Hemingway's indeed, editor? Indeed, quite well, quite a hundred percent. Well done. Uh, and he was and Fitzgerald's keeper, really. I mean, uh, look, sadly, yeah. yeah, he'd have gone to his grave earlier without Maxwell Perkins. You're yeah. quite right. And I thought, you know, Corley's was the same class, totally bonkers and brilliant. And he would take my book, and we'd sit and go through it, and he'd throw ideas out. And they were, they were 60 years of experience coming out. And I, this was with Cain and Abel? Yeah. And you like, mentioned the switching over from the biblical yes. model, right? Yes. Well, I know. <laughs> he was very funny about it. It's interesting you say that because he said, oh, we got a problem. I said, great man, what's the problem? He said, well, in the Bible, he said, uh, Abel dies before Cain. You're going to need a big rewrite. And I said, no, no, no. I so said, you go to page 157, when they're on the phone, he says, and if you think it's going to end like the Bible, forget it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, he said, that will do. So we were teaching each other the whole time. But he was, what I'm getting from that story is he was totally practical and totally straight line with him, and he had to get it right. But his genius was, having worked with some of the greatest authors on earth, uh, there was nothing to teach him. He'd seen it all, done it all. Did you see a difference between editing styles in New York and in London? Yes. They're much more serious in New York. Uh, I can't say that's true today. I can say it's true 40 years ago. The editor, like Maxwell Perkins, mm. like Corley Smith, were already highly respected in the profession, yeah. highly sought after. So when Cain and Abel was purchased by Simon & Schuster, they immediately went and got Corley Smith. That's how big he was. Yeah. They wanted him. And uh, I been, I, it was like being with a tutor right. at university. You had this man on the other side of the table who was immensely clever, immensely bright, but immensely experienced. And I just learned from him. Every day of the week I learned from him, and I go to my grave thanking him. What are your thoughts about literary fiction? And, you know... What, what, how would you describe the kind of books you write? Are they well, this stories, is a problem. Are they thrillers? What is your... It's a problem because I'm a storyteller and you can't say that, uh, say, for example, <sighs> Prisoner of Birth, Cain uh, and Abel, are anything like Paths of Glory. Mm. So I'm a storyteller. What has been flattering recently is I've been winning prizes for writing, but I still think upon myself as... as, as I think upon myself as a, as a storyteller... But I was told off by, I was in Portugal a couple of weeks ago, and the equivalent to The Guardian was coming to interview me. 
Uh, and the, they said, you got to watch this lady. She's not only tough. If you think the Guardian are tough, you wait till you meet her. And she sat down there and said, you've got to stop calling yourself a, a storyteller. So I said, why? That's what I am. No, she said, you're a writer. Okay. And the fact that the British don't acknowledge it, don't even let it worry you. You are a writer. Are you, do you see any comparison with Le Carre, who was you know, initially regarded very much as a genre yeah. novelist? You really are well-researched. Um, <laughs> you know, and if you look at the way his early books are printed, foil covers... Yes, like, and like he was very hurt by it. Yeah. Well, Donald Trelford, the editor of The Observer, claims he was the man who changed that. At what Donald stage? Trelford claims when he edited The Observer, he read his third book or his fourth book, yeah and said, you've got to stop treating this man as if he's a spy thriller. He isn't. He's a great writer. Yeah. And yes, you're quite 100%. I'll give you 100%. Uh, he is now acknowledged as a fine writer. Yeah. And it means a lot to him. I know it means a lot to him. He'd rather be a fine writer than acknowledged as storyteller writer. But he nonetheless kept himself at, at one removed to the kind of literary establishment. and Yes, he did. Well, he like keeps that. himself one removed from everybody. Yeah. He's a very... Um, private man, yeah. very talented man too. I mean, writing is not the only thing he does. He's a beautiful speaker, uh, and he's almost everything he touches he does with style. Yeah. He's a class act. Uh, how do you feel about the literary establishment and things like that, and how, well, how you have been perceived? To begin with, they were snooty yeah. uh, because I was selling too many copies. Yeah. Uh, recently, they've been very generous indeed. I mean, they now describe the Times has subsequently described uh, Cain and Abel as a classic. And uh, someone as tough as uh, Massey has come out saying there's a hell of a lot of writers who wish they wrote as well as Jeffrey does, sure. which is very kind. I'm very touched by that. But uh, if you're asking the more cruel question, would I rather have sold 275 million books or have the Nobel Prize? Thanks, I'd rather have written 275 million books. And by the way, just in case you didn't notice, with all that research of yours, Dumas still survives today. Mm. And he wasn't thought of, even in his day, he wasn't thought of as a great writer. Yeah. Well, the novel wasn't thought of as great art. Fair point. You know, at that stage. Fair point. We, to, uh, uh, That's one, a fair point. One of our rules in the podcast is we always ask about money and people's writing lives and how they've interacted. When was it clear that you were going to make substantial money. Well, the they bought Ken and Abel for 3200000 which yeah. was a minor clue 40 years ago. What would that be in today's money? $30 million. Yeah. Um, And it changed my whole life. Of course it did. I haven't had to work since. Right. I go on working because I want to. This is what I want to do. But um, I am painfully aware. I went to the House of Commons uh, last week to the Writers Guild and read that pamphlet since and listen to the speeches by John Whittingdale in particular and the Secretary of State, the average writer is getting £10,100 a year. Yeah. And so I sat there thinking, you know, wow, that's... And of course, they're all doing other jobs yeah. while they're writing. You may fall in that category mm. yourself. <laughs> yeah, I do journalism, exactly. Sorry? I write journalism, exactly. But you'd like to be a novelist? Uh, we can discuss that in... Yeah, I, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I very um, interesting. But w w say how if you're shifting these biblical quantities of books, how does your relationship with your publisher? How is it different? I mean, it's hard to judge, isn't it? Because you hear stories from other authors about how badly they're treated, yeah. and you think I'm not treated that way, and then they look at you in the eye and say, "Of course you're not, you silly thing." Yeah. So I, I'm not in any doubt. If you sell millions of copies, the publisher treats you, treats you differently. Yeah. Um, 
And have you stayed with the same publisher? I've been with the Macmillan now for 20 years. Yeah. I left um, HarperCollins when they sacked Eddie Bell. I don't see you're too young to know. know uh, Eddie Bell was uh, chairman of HarperCollins and they sacked him and he discovered Cain and Abel. He okay. was the man who discovered Cain and Abel in England and, and, and famously sold a million copies in one week. Right. Uh, but they sacked him years later. And I'm one of those people who likes people. Publishing house, it's wonderful, very important to be with a good one. But I like people. And so when they sacked him, I left. Okay. I disappeared. And uh, so people mean a lot to me in, in, in that sense. And Eddie had been loyal and passionate about my books. I don't think they sacked him because I think he'd just come to the end of it's the way the Murdoch Empire works. Mm. You do 10 years or whatever and they get rid of you. Yeah. They throw someone else in the deep end. Uh, but I felt strongly this man had changed my life, and I owed it to him to leave as well. And Richard Sharkin came along, a very distinguished publisher from Macmillan, and said, uh, and I, I care about people. He's a passionately bright, well-read, intelligent man. Hmm. I wanted to be with him. Yeah. And what about your agent? Have you had the same representation? For the last 20 years, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the more successful you get the less you need an agent right agents are at their best with young people who are desperate to get the first book published yeah. because they don't know the ins and outs they don't know how it all works but after 24 books you get a pretty good idea he, he said you were demanding but that it was worth it because you were professional would that be a fair oh very fair i am demanding i am demanding and i my publicist uh, ruth cairns was teasing me the other day she said she went to someone who said Oh, Archer's impossible. I said, why is, she said, why is he impossible? He wanted a particular pen for signing. Okay. And she said, to, she said to this lady, you're an amateur. That's just being professional. What is the pen? I have a felt tip pen for signing because of paper. The okay. paper in a novel is a different texture to normal paper. So I have a special felt tip pen. So the ink which, won't run. Yes, it doesn't run, correct. Yeah. And it looks nice. Yeah. And I have another pen for writing um which i always use the same one there's the felt tip pen this is the which i always use for autographs a pilot super yeah okay i haven't got my other one here i usually have um i wanted to ask as well about this i you know the idea of of storytelling and kind of 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 making 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 up stories and how that kind of crossed over. I, as I said at the beginning, I'm not really interested in talking about your political career and so forth here. But did you follow the recent scandal with A. J. Flynn, the the novelist? I know who A. J. Flynn is. The New Yorker. Now remind me because I read it. Did he say he hadn't written the book or he he said something that was he, interesting? He, uh, he said a lot of things that weren't true, but the New Yorker did a big piece which revealed that his mother hadn't died and oh, right. claimed, claimed all sorts of things. And people were saying, well, you know, what do you expect a novelist to do? They, <laughs> they make up stories about their life. But as, as someone, you know, you, you went to prison for perjury. That, yeah. that happened as well. Has, has this storytelling ability that has worked so well for you in the literary environment, has it been difficult in other parts of your life? No. How so? No. You don't think that's, uh, that there's a, a sort of temptation to no. that, that ability? No. They're two totally different professions. Okay. What about the, the non-fiction then? The, you, you know, the, the prison diary and things like that. How did that fit? And is your process, is that the I same? just work the same. Prisons are a complete waste of time. For They should be doing far better things. than. I mean, they, I was offered a job at Mencap 
in Ipswich because their director died overnight. Okay. So they got in touch with the president and said, look, we'll, we'll take him every morning at nine. We'll pick him back at six. We just want him to run Mencap in Ipswich. Okay. And they said, no, I'm absolutely nuts. <laughs> Here was I able to give something back to society. Yes. So I wrote the books instead. Okay. Um, can we talk about India? I know that we came to you via, oh, mad, the, isn't it? via the, the Jaipur Festival, and I understand that you have mad. an enormous following. You saw the pictures, did you? No, I didn't see them. <coughs> Alison, could we show the picture? Uh, Jaipur. <coughs> 7,500 people came to hear me speak. Okay. I mean, you, you have to see the picture to believe it. Again, I mean, it's not believable. Again, why, why is this? Or is this another I think they're a very aspirational race. Okay. I think then, like myself, nouveau riche. Uh, and striving, yeah, and that's of course what Cain and Abel. Well, not not Cain, but Abel is very much that. Okay. So I suspect they see themselves as Abel. Yeah. And many of my books are about achieving, and getting on, and the Indians are very aspirational. You've only got to see their cricket team to know. Uh, yeah. To see that. When did that emerge then? That you had this. this oh, that was a shock. Uh, we just saw the figures that were selling, yeah. and I had the head of the Jaipur Festival whisper in my ear the other day. He said, uh, "You're down there as every every book sells quarter of a million the day it comes out, or okay. a couple of weeks." He said, "That's a third, Jeffrey." And I said, "What do you mean there's a third? He said, "A third. There's another third that are just selling it at half price, okay. and there's another third who are uh, just selling it without you knowing." Do you, do you feel that you you have kind of peers, you know, other best-selling authors? Are you friends? Do you meet for supper? People who are selling books in this kind of quantity? Do you know James Patterson, for example? Or no, I don't. Um, I know Freddie Forsyth because we sort of started together. I've met John Le Carre. Authors aren't like actors. We don't appear together on television and do films and radios together. Yeah. Uh, so the answer to that is no. Um, though when I get the opportunity to talk to another author, I take advantage of it. Because just as you said with great interest at the beginning about John le Carre, if I can get the opportunity to see what their technique is and yeah. what they're doing, to see how if there's any way I could refine mine. Yes, I do. I'm fascinated by that. On the technique piece coming back as well, all longhand still? Every single word is handwritten. Then handed up to where well, we were in Mallorca, given to um, Alison, who triple uh, types it triple spaced, and then I work with a Statler pencil, always the same. Okay. Uh, if you can find a better pencil, I'll, yes, I, I'll use that. If you can find a better pen, okay. I'll use that. We're always looking for something that makes life easier, and, and a lot of journalists I introduce to my pen because a lot of journalists write with a ghastly biro. No, no, I'll show you what I use. Uh, and and I look at them scratching away. Oh, I've never seen that. It's a Midori bullet pen. <laughs> I've never seen that. Wow. Wow. I'll show you how it opens up. Cool. No, cool. Bravo you. Someone's learning. Yeah, they're rather <laughs> good. But what, what, is, what is happening between draft 7 and draft 11? Like Seven and eleven. Yeah. Well, it'll be typewritten by then. It'll, it'll Alison will have done it six times by then. Okay. Uh, and it's just being crafted by then. The story is usually there on the first draft. Yeah. It's the story is all over by the third draft. Then I'm crafting. I'll give you an example. One because it happened a couple of days ago. Yeah. 
I had written a sentence about a drug dealer being caught, and his mother had given him away. And I'd written, his mother gave him away. It was your mother who gave you away. But she didn't realize it. This is the policeman saying to okay. the drug dealer, your mother gave you away. And then he tries to reassure the guy, and said, but she didn't realize it. I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, your mother betrayed you, but unlike Judas, she didn't mean to. Hmm. So you might have got that first sentence that I delivered in the first three drafts. You wouldn't get that last one until about the ninth. Right. So you're always trying to make it an inch better the whole time. And that, but it doesn't go to your editor till. Oh, no. Ninth thought. Uh, the current one has... I, I'm still working. The current one is... Which draft are we on, Alison? I'm on seven. I think you might... They haven't seen it yet. Okay. And once they get it, how much change will there be? I think we worked it out because that, we've been asked that question so often. Yeah. A 3%. Okay. So they're pretty clean. It's pretty yeah, clean. Yeah, yeah. Well, 3% usually means... These cut three percent cutting because, because I can definitely, I totally see the rationale of the draft system. Yeah, but for yes. me, but I'm, you, you, I need feedback at that stage. It's a discussion between yourself and an editor, and to go through that many drafts when no one has seen it. Yes, that seems to me a distinct way of working. Ah, because where I mean, I can see that you're you have time to to cogitate upon it and things, but you don't have that kind of discussion between two no. people. That, that for me is no, no, no early readers, no, no, okay. no. I want to get it to a stage where it's in shape. Yeah. Then they can give their opinions. And uh, I've got a very good editor, lady in New York called Catherine. She's outstanding. Uh, so she'll come through with notes to begin with. Then I'll go back. Then we sit down, usually for a morning, and do it. Whereas Corley Smith was three weeks on Cain and Abel. Okay. But I was, I'm a better craftsman now yeah. after 24 books. Not a better storyteller. I wanted, wanted to ask about the Rupert Brooke connection with the house. Was that part when you bought the old? No, do me. Love the house. It wasn't. You were It wasn't a. a I have no interest at all. Or anything like nah. that. I mean, I was a great poet and all that. But yeah. I love the house. The house next door was up for sale. They both came up for sale at the time, same time. And Mary actually liked the house next door, but from okay. Russell's house more than she liked uh, the old vicarage. I liked the old vicarage and won that battle, and she now has no regrets because she loves the old vicarage. Okay. But Rupert Brooke. She has a great knowledge of Rupert Brooke now, typical Mary. She now knows all about Rupert Brooke. There was Brooke. a novel written, a kind of fictionalized retelling of his time in Grantchester 10 years ago or so. Sorry? By Jill Dawson, like a fictionalized retelling of his time in Grantchester, of, that, of Rupert Brooke's time there. Oh, I didn't you know, know that. It's very interesting, yeah. Oh, the, I'd like to get hold of that. The Great Lover. It's very good. Called but, The Great the Lover? Great Lover by Jill Dawson. Yeah. Could you, yeah, when you write, would, would you would be kind enough? Yeah, I, I'd like to give that to Mary. And I was thinking, you know, she may know about it, but yeah. I, I've not heard about it. With Mallorca as well, that wasn't you weren't. This wasn't kind of Robert Graves no. in the Sun, or you, you were trying. To Mind you, could say that almost anywhere you go, couldn't you? I agree, you couldn't with one house. Yeah. But Mallorca, I mean, he was the other side of the island. Yeah. He's greatly respected, yeah. much loved in Mallorca, and I've met his son, and I've met his grandson, okay. who come to see me, which is very kind of them. Uh, so I'm very aware of him, yes, yes. But no, no, no. I, I bought a piece of land and built a house. Yeah. 
And again, going back to, to the stories themselves, the idea of chronicles, of multi, multi yeah, yeah, extended yeah. narrative, when did you decide you wanted to... Well, at the age of 70, I got panicky. How much longer will I live? Yeah. The good book says, three score year and ten, shove off. And so I set myself the task of writing five books. Okay. Interlinked. Uh, one, st- one narrative. Yes. Yeah. On the story of the Cliftons. Yeah. But when we got to the end of the fifth book, they were only 40. Harry was 40, Charles was 40, Emma was 40, so 38. So I went back to my publisher and said, it'll work very neatly for seven books. Mm-hmm. And they said, fine, get on with it. Because the shock was, the boss told me years afterwards, he didn't have the courage to tell me at the time. He said, the problem with narrative like that is book one always sells more than any other book. Right. So book one, let's call book one 100% for the sake of having a, and then it goes down to 90, then it goes down to 8. The return diminishes. Yes. These were going up every single time. Okay. Every single book sold more than the one before. So in the end, the first book in hardback had sold 47,000. Now you've got to double that because of Kindle. So just under 100,000. Whereas uh, this was a man sold nearly 200,000. So they were going up, 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 and, and and to be fair to him, he sits with me and says, don't ask me to explain it. The rules are, they go down. Did you have touchstones? Were you thinking Proust? Were you thinking Anthony Pohl? Or, you know, what were you, did you have an... Oh, I couldn't think Anthony Pohl. is one of the great writers of of my, in my lifetime, Anthony Pohl's one. I don't think like that. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's been much more compared to the Foresight Saga, right, to which is Lady. more realistic. Yeah. Um... No, Anthony Pohl is in, he's in a stratosphere I don't fully understand. And don't always fully understand even when I'm reading him. Yeah. Uh, whereas... Uh, but again, an interesting writer in, in terms of his, what his reputation did, right? That it's sort of uh, yes, fair point. Then, yes. Yes, I understand where you're going, where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, it's always very hard. I had a, I had a, a letter from John Buchan's grandson. Saying you are the modern John Buchan. As of uh, the 39 steps. Yes, as of the 39 steps. And I thought, well, yes, we're both politicians. Yeah. Both love that sort of life and both write about that sort of world. And I, and I think if you look at 39 steps, it's a damn good piece of storytelling. That's what it is. So I, I try not to compare myself. I think you, every writer is their own person. But you again, the, the method this you had, if you're saying you're not, you're not pre-planning, you're not laying out a plot, that was the same for the saga. You had no idea where it was going. No idea. In fact, I'll give you an... But you knew it was a lifetime. I'm very hard for someone like you if you're going to be a novelist yourself. And if you're the sort of novelist who knows exactly where you're going, you'll sit there thinking he's making this up, but no, I'll prove it. Yeah. No, I'll prove it. I got up one morning with... Uh, there's a character in um, the Clifford Chronicles called Lady Virginia who's a right piece of work. So I thought, book three, I decided to get rid of her. Uh, well, your editor said no, right? This was the... They didn't even know what I was doing. Okay. Uh, and I, but I decided that day I was going to get rid of yeah. her. And uh, so I said, "How will I? well, I'll have my heroine, Emma, sue her. And of course Emma will win, because Emma is the heroine. And my evil Lady Virginia will be knocked on the nose. And so I got up that morning and I wrote the first sentence with the, the barrister saying to her, X, Y, and Z, and out came ABC. Okay. So I thought, wait a minute, she just stuffed the barrister. So the barrister asks another question, and she stuffs him again. And the barrister asks another question, and she's st- uh, we just coming off the end of the pen until uh, she won the case. 
Now, could I, should I have gone back and said, no, no, the whole purpose of this is she loses the case. No, her winning the case for me was thrilling and fun. So I ran with it and went with it. But it was exactly opposite to what I had planned when I got out of bed that morning. But does the, the, the plot thread that, that just comes out of your head, does that remain intact through this process of revising? Yes. Right. Yes. I rewrote Cain and Abel okay. after 20 years. Because and if I answer that question honestly, I rewrote it because I was shocked by how it was still selling. Okay. Now on its 121st reprint, I'm mean, yeah. shocked. So I thought, can I make it better? Can it last forever? So I, it ended up, it's 254,000 words. Mm. It ended up 8,000 words less. Okay. No change. To answer your question, no change in the story at all. Okay. But all those years later, I was a little bit better craftsman. 8,000 words went. We were talking off air beforehand about uh, Rory Stewart and, and politicians who write. Disraeli, obviously, another famous example. Is there an obvious mesh, an obvious crossover between those two? Well, only that we meet fascinating people yeah. and we're involved in a fascinating life. I think what's happening now with the leadership contest, people keep saying to me, could you write that? And I say, no, it's so strange. We well, couldn't we, do we, Trump or Boris we, now. We interviewed James Graham, the playwright who did This House. And I'm a Brexit. huge admirer of Yeah, James his Graham. work was very interesting to talk to him about. He, you know, he will go in sometimes for an event 25, 30 years ago, but, but also really, you know, really when it's fresh. And well, the house engaged. was wonderful. Yeah. The house was a, not only a magnificent piece of writing, politicians admired it. Yeah. Uh, every politician I've spoken to loved it. But it was interesting with him because I, I was asking him about this, and I, he was, you know... They, they love being represented on stage in a way they would not in a piece of journalism. <laughs> or, you know, there's a, there's a one remove. It's like the political cartoon. Yeah. Yes, I think that, there's a bit of truth that in that. It's, that it's, it's, it's kind of... But I knew all the characters that he was, in particular Jack Weatherall, who was a close friend. Yeah. Uh, and he wrote it beautifully. Jack was the straightest man I've ever met in my life. He was a great... I mean, the people... That, this idea that all politicians are crooks and bad is just drivel. Uh, Jack was one of the finest men I've ever met in my life. And Mr. Graham caught him absolutely spot on. Yeah. He was unable to give his word to someone and then go back on it. And if it meant disobeying, he'd given his word, and that was enough. Now, you might say cynically, being next generation, two generations on, you might say they're not like that today, Jeffrey. Mm. Uh, fair enough. Jack was like that. Can we talk about your playwriting? Mm. Where where that fitted and alongside the novels and 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 also the the dramatic adaptations of your novels mm. were you involved in the production of those? Well, I I, I wrote a play. It's funny you've caught the right day. I I wrote a play many years ago called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, which ran for eighteen months in the West End. It's about to be uh, revived by one of England's greatest producers. So that's thrilling. Late in life to have the play that was a big hit. 30 years ago, coming back. I love playwriting. I've just written two short stories and turned them into plays, and I'm looking for a producer. But I love the theatre. I go to theatre twice a week. I almost live in the theatre. And my son is a producer. He's what's called a producer's producer because he, he, he has a fund which finances productions. He's currently got 14 productions out there. So I'm in the theatre world all the time. Mm. How is your method for writing drama? Is it different at all? <sighs> yes, but if you go to theatre twice a week, yeah. there's not 
much you haven't seen in the form of construction. You're not again, gonna... I, was, I was reading a book on screenwriting last week, and that was, you know, oh, screenwriting. It, it was the extraordinary, the kind of apotheosis of the stickers on the board and, you know, working out the act structure and, and all of that. And, you know, I can, I can see that if one thinks of a play as a, you know, a watch, a complicated mechanism with lots of things going in, do you think you need to have a bit more structural scaffolding? Uh, I see what you mean. Yes. You go? Oh, yes. Yeah. And every word counts. By God, every word counts. You yeah. can't be messing about but I do return to the fact if you've been from the age of 15 going to two plays a week, mm. every week, so there's a thousand plays in there, uh, and some of them one's seen four or five times. For example, um, I'm going to the Miller at uh, the Young Vic. Uh, I think it's at the Young Vic, or maybe it's at the Old Vic. Uh, this week or next week, I'm going to a witness for the prosecution this week. Uh, Last week I went to Anne at uh, the National Theatre. It's non-stop. So it, it but the interest for you is, is live theatre, not the drama, not television or not film? Or? No, I've never written for television or film. Uh, I do think, actually, to be fair, that's a very different skill. Okay. I think, for example, Aaron Sorkin is a genius. Yeah. And don't think I haven't studied his scripts yeah. and... Uh, and the, what, the, the West Wing is my favorite sure. ever, ever, uh, whatever you call that, serial, series. Um, I mean, with something like that, with politics, whether it's in a novel or in a play, how, how true can you bring it? Does it have to be simplified? Does it have to be, you know, how, how accurately can you represent that world, do you think? Well, it's very interesting you said that you use the word simplified. Yeah. Because, of course, it can take weeks to do. We've seen it's taken Brexit three years. Yeah. But if you wrote a play, you've got to do it in two hours. Yeah. So yes, it has to be very simplified and very cut down. But in in real, honest terms, it's farce to pretend that you can do a play in two hours. If you look at this, this the house, yeah. I think that's over a period of five years. Yeah. I may be wrong. It's over a period of a parliament. Yeah. But you don't feel that. It doesn't worry you. The changes don't worry you. Because it all took place 40 years ago? Because the, the, it's set out and so forth? People know what happened? The, ah. the past is another country, maybe? Yes, I suppose there's a bit of that. As opposed to modern stuff they don't know, you mean? Yeah, I don't know. I'm conscious of time, and we're, you've been very gracious for, for, for speaking for this length of time, but I suppose the final question I would have is, was there an element of proving people wrong with your writing? Was that, was that something that was... I'm not quite sure what the question means. I'm not being were clever. You, were you... I'm not clever any if longer. If people were snooty about your work, you know, that you'd, you started this when you were at a kind of low ebb financially and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Has... Oh, I see what you has mean. Has kind of showing, oh. showing them been a motivation? I think after 40 years, they've got over it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yes, to begin with, you're quite right. How can he possibly have written one of the most successful books in history uh, when he isn't a writer? Yeah. God damn him. He's a politician. Uh, I think they've got over that now. After 24 books at number one on the, new, on the, on the London Times, mm. it's a bit difficult to go around saying he isn't a writer. It's interesting. I came across a few years ago, I'm trying to remember the title, but a novel that sold enormous quantities in the 60s. It was scandalous for its depiction of sex and stuff like that. And it's almost entirely unknown now. Do you yes. think that you're... Or, or I remember at university where I read English, we had to read East Lynn. That was the most one of the most successful novels of the nineteenth century. East Lynn, yeah, you haven't heard of it. Or no one, no one reads it today. It's almost unknown, but it was hugely successful in the eighteen fifties. Do you think your work will endure? 
Well, there's two things to tell you there. First, it's on its 112th reprint yeah. uh, after 40 years. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be on its 220th 40 years after I'm dead? Mm. Maybe you're right. Maybe the day after I die, no one will buy Cain and Abel. Yeah. But there's, there's no, I mean, half the world wouldn't even know I was alive because it's a 40-year-old book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still selling two, three, four hundred thousand a year across the world. So I hope so. I hope so. But I was shocked reading uh, the life of uh, Fitzgerald recently that just before he died, he received a check uh, for $4.15 for the annual sales on The Great Gatsby. And I thought, I mean, he's This is the kind of crack-up period when he's in Hollywood. Yeah, when he was was drinking out of a hair bottle. I mean, tragic. Yes, but that shouldn't have made any difference to the book already written, no. it collapsed. And so did Stefan Zweig. Yeah. But now they're both legends. Now they're both... In the canon. Yes, they are. Yeah. And, and I worship them both. I think they're two, and they deserve to be there. I was going to, this, this genuinely is the, the, the final question, but I, c- could you tell a little bit about just the promotional side of your work, the talks, you know, the travel, the festivals? How much of your time does that take up? Well, it only takes up the time if I've got the time and enjoy it. Right. I mean, the other part of my life is I'm a charity auctioneer, and that takes up a lot more time. Um, I do, last year I did 33 charity auctions. Last week, funnily enough, was a weird, weird, weird week, I did three. And I do enjoy that, because I touch the people, get near the people, uh, do the acting side that I'm not allowed to do normally. So I do much more of that than festivals. I'm not sure festivals achieve a great deal, not least because your fans turn up. They've already read you. They're going to read the next book. Uh, getting to new people is the difficult thing. Mm. That's, there are so many authors out there who would sell so many more copies if only people knew they existed. Yeah. Uh, I, are you, you're active on social media now. You do Twitter. Yeah. Oh, tweet, Facebook, blog, everything. Uh, yeah, I want to be read. Oh yes, yeah. I'm desperate to be read, but it's 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 quite difficult because people I see the crits on Facebook on here on Kindle all the time saying I've just discovered Jeffrey Archer. Well, wait a moment, I've written 24 books and well, novels, and I've been around for 40 years. They've just discovered me. So you realise there are millions of people out there who've never heard of you. Well, look, that's an excellent place, I think, to finish. Thank you for being such a, a candid and gracious guest and wishing you all the best with your writing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. Ellie, how are you? You look a bit end of summer. Do I? Oh, as in fading tan? No, I don't know, slightly, <laughs> slightly exhausted. <laughs> oh, I look exhausted, Simon. I mean, not, not in like an <laughs> ageing way, but... Um, I'm good. I've had a really busy few weeks doing various cover stories for a review. Went to Montreal to interview Camila Cabello. Okay. Do you know who that is? No. no. Um, who is Camila Cabello? She's a pop star. Okay. I feel like I'm talking to It's not dissimilar to the conversations I have with Dad over lunch. Um, and I interviewed Anya, <laughs> Anya I, feel, Dale, I feel pretty crushed. Anya Taylor-Joy. I don't know who she is either. She's a rising... Uh, a star in the acting world. Could you do me like a reading list? Of a reading list of things to yeah talk to people under thirty about. 
<laughs> You're not even that old, Simon. I know, but I'm I just exclusively imbibe. You actually look hike. a bit younger than you did before. Oh, I really? I think it's the Alpine Air. It could be the sort of um, what's that Oscar Wilde novel that, about the person with the painting in his uh, in his attic that gets younger as he gets older. Uh, I'm sure. It's like you and me, Ellie. <laughs> So, Simon, you've had quite an eventful few weeks because your book that has been so far unspoken about on this podcast... It has. ...is finally out in the open. Well, yeah, so attentive so listeners may have realised that I stopped talking about my book in January uh, when a whole Ferrari kicked off. Um, but that's now been publicised in The Guardian. Um, I think it's it's a complicated situation. I think probably the best thing to do is to see that piece, which is available on all good internet browsers. But yeah, it's <laughs> nice that it's nice that it's out it's out in the open now. The um, the snafu. What's uh, it called? The changing of the guard. Um, about. And, uh, it's about the army. It's about what happened to the army after nine eleven. And uh, the publisher got spooked, and uh, they refused to publish it. What's the most kind of salacious thing in there or the thing that the army that would be the army would take most issue with it's kind of hard to know i think i think that it i mean it lays pretty bare what what happened in those conflicts but also the fact that um it's kind of i said in this piece i wrote today that you know it's a bit of an open secret everyone knows this didn't go particularly well but it's never been really dragged out into the open but i think i think it's complicated but it's obviously it, you know, it's been laid out in the press now, and there's been inquiries from other publishers. So we'll have to see what happens in the next in the next Top few property. things. Yeah, I'd hope so. Maybe maybe a listener will be uh, will want to publish it. Anyway, we will we will see. But I'm glad that it's it's yeah, it's in in the public domain now. Anyway, what about you, Ellie? What's been going on apart from interviewing pop stars who I don't know and actors? And actors. Uh, that's it. Only that. No. Uh, what else have I done? Writing about clowns actually will be out by now. It chapter two is out. Okay. Um, and you know what that is? The Stephen the Simon. <laughs> it's a Stephen King novel. Right? Do you only read dead people? Yeah. And only, watch... only white ones. Oh God. Um, it's about uh, it's Stephen King. Oh, it's only the classical music. Oh, I make. know you actually do. Um, it's a it's an adaptation of the Stephen King uh, novels. Okay. Uh, and it has put some clowns out of business because it's about a killer clown that okay. kills all these children. And clowns have since felt like business has been less uh, lucrative than usual because they've stopped being invited to kind of do the kids' birthday but parties. But clowns are fundamentally sinister, though. Well, that's what a psychologist said to me. Uh, yeah. He said, it's a totally rational fear to be afraid of clowns. Why wouldn't you be? It's bloody weird. Strange man with a white face. Right. All of that. How did we go on to clowns? Uh, because I interviewed some clowns okay. Okay. Uh, for this piece about whether clowns felt like It Chapter 2 was ruining business once again. Uh, and what did they conclude? They said, actually, it's not. And the clowns that moan about this are using this as an excuse for bad, just being bad shit clowns. Tools. Exactly. So clowns are all good. There we go. And that's that. Very exciting. Uh, that's the T. Do you know what that means? No. <laughs> I, d I think you're making this stuff up now. These aren't these aren't real singers. Oh, They're on. not real youth phrases. They are. It's your secret language. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to find us on social media, oh, we go into the credits now. It's uh, always take notes on Instagram and take notes always on Twitter. Uh, and please do rate, review, and subscribe. Turn your phone off, Simon. Uh, on iTunes. Uh, 
We've done this the wrong way around. I think we should just press on. But anyway, I'm going to stay the credits bit now. I'm <laughs> determined to say that. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Uh, our score is by Jess Danheiser. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. Ellie's already done the social media bit. Does someone this want is to a co- radical Does revision. someone want to be our social media person? That is true. Should we just do a live advert? We're looking to hire someone to do our social media. Uh, because Zara's left us. Zara has, has left us for, for, for her book. Pastures new. Uh, yes, yeah, so if you're interested in that, do, do please get in touch. It's a sort of between uni and first job role. Are we saying that? We're not discriminating. Ellie just hates old people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>